0: I've watched too much TV during the pandemic, uh, especially dramatic TV. Anyway, this podcast is produced by Jesus Centered Resources, which I've uh, mentioned in the last few episodes is a thing, but it's not really a thing. It's the umbrella name I've given to whatever it is I'm doing going forward. Many of you know, have listened to the podcast for a while that that for, uh, I I worked with uh, group publishing for thirty three years, and because of the pandemic. Uh, group had to cut about half of its staff um, a little over a month ago, and I was one of those. Um, So obviously, an upending, difficult, uh, hard thing to go through, but now I'm in my little rowboat on the ocean beach and shoving it off into the great unknown sea in front of me (laughs) and So just so that I uh, know where I'm headed, I'm calling whatever it is I'm doing next, Jesus Centered Resources. So uh, as time goes on and opportunities are explored, I'll let you know more about what I'm going to be doing uh, coming soon. But um, uh, for right now, I'm trying to build things and explore things and experiment with things and keep my hands open to Jesus and let him blow my little boat wherever he wants to. That's what I'm trying to do. So For those of you who's, uh, this is your first time listening to the podcast, my name is Rick. I'm author of uh, about 40 books and curriculums. Now, sometimes I look down the list of those books and curriculums and I think, how did you have time to do all that? (laughs) It just doesn't seem possible that I had time to do all that. And yet, there they are. So uh, you can head on over to Amazon if you want to check out all of my books and curriculums and other stuff. Just search for Rick Lawrence and You'll find the list. Um, and last year, uh, uh, the the last book that came out was called "The God Who Fights for You," and uh, before that, it was a book called "Spiritual Grid," and before that, it was a book called "The Jesus Centered Life," which this podcast is sort of uh, the uh, uh, the darling child of, I guess you could call it that. And before that, I was the general editor of the Jesus Centered Bible, which is a one of a kind, unique. Bible that where, no matter where you're reading in scripture, um, in this particular Bible, because of the extra features that we worked to invest in it, no matter where you're reading, um, you'll find Jesus. Uh, we have eight or nine different things we've done in this Jesus centered Bible to make sure that you're orbiting around Jesus no matter where you're reading. So if you've never seen a copy of the Jesus centered Bible, head on over to group.com and search for the jesus Center Bible. It'll show you all the features and you will fall in love with it. As so many have told me through emails and notes and smoke smoke signals that they absolutely love this Bible and it has transformed the way they read scripture and has helped them to get closer and closer to Jesus, which is really uh, my whole mission in life is just to nudge us all a little bit closer to the heart of Jesus every day, every podcast. So um, if you're a long-time listener to the podcast, you also know that exciting news in early October, uh, the biggest, baddest writing project of my entire life is coming out. It's called the Jesus Center Daily. It's a 365-day devotional that is unique in its approach. It has an upending devotional thought about Jesus, and then it has a question to answer and a prayer, a suggestion for prayer you can give. And something to do as a result of the devotion, a very simple experiential way to connect with the theme of the devotion. All of that in 300 words or less. <laughs> so that's why it was so difficult. Uh, it's, uh, any writer will tell you that it's a lot harder to write in a short length than it is a long length. And I have 365 of these short length things. It felt like writing a 365 chapter book. So um, I love, love, love the way that it turned out. And my friend, Jeff Storm, who's my longtime art director at Group, is the one who designed the cover and the interior, and it's just beautiful. If you want to take a look at what that looks like, you can head on over to Amazon again and just search for the Jesus Center Daily, and you'll you'll see that beautiful cover that Jeff Storm created for it. That's coming out in October, and right now working on some things to... um, to give you early access to that devotional, so I'll tell you more soon. But I'm also uh, I, I'm developing a website for the devotional, so that people can see some of its uh, some of its features and uh, interact with it a little bit before they buy it. So uh, I'm still building that, and it's a steep learning curve building websites. Um, but I'll let you know more about that in the in the coming weeks and. And it's called uh, the Jesus Center Daily. It's called JesusCenterDaily.com. That'll be the website name, JesusCenterDaily.com. But it is not up yet, so I'll let you know when it is. And uh, last little addendum: I've been telling you about my friend Jeff White, who created this extraordinary story Bible for adults called Eyewitness. It's coming out in early September, and uh, I've been telling you to go. Take a look at this. Uh, the, the website that's set up for this story Bible for adults is called ExperienceEyewitness.com. Please go check out ExperienceEyewitness.com. You will see something you've never seen before—a <laughs> uh, a story Bible that, when we say it's for adults, we mean that the Bible is, you know, sometimes seen as a children's book because of the stories that, that we tend to tell in Sunday school. But most of the stories in the Bible are not fit for Sunday school. <laughs> they're raw, authentic. They're edgy. They're difficult. They're what you might see on HBO, <laughs> believe it or not. And this story Bible, along with this incredible artwork that's, that's in, the, in this story Bible, um, lead you into a more authentic and raw relationship with God. So go on over to experienceeyewitness.com and um, at the start of September, I'll have Jeff on the podcast and we can talk a little bit about what it means to live authentically and rawly with Jesus. I'm not even sure rawly is a word, but I used it so it is. So gang, we're six episodes into this series that I'm calling In His Image. We're exploring what makes Jesus, Jesus, and and in turn... Uh, we're exploring how we're wired to reflect the essence of Jesus in our everyday life. We know from the Genesis account that God created us in his image. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean we look like him? Well, maybe collectively we look like him, but um, no, it means that we reflect the essence of God's heart in who we are. And so therefore, it's important to understand what that essence is, to see it in ourselves and then live it out more fully. And today, we're going to focus on something that, that is central and core to the heart of God, but we hardly ever think about it this way. And that central core characteristic is work. Work. <laughs> so, and, and I know as soon as I say that word work, that our default reaction to that word is at least vaguely negative and maybe specifically negative. And yet work is central and core to who Jesus is. And, and it's therefore central and core to our reflection of God. So work is a very important thing for us to understand in the heart of God so that we can help, help ourselves understand our role and mission in the world relative to work. So, of course, I'm grateful to all of you who listen to this podcast regularly, because you have to sacrifice, you have to work to listen to the podcast, don't you? I mean, maybe you don't think of it that way, but I don't know if you've noticed, but this podcast isn't exactly short. So I know that every single person who listens to this podcast from the beginning to the end, you've had to invest, uh, you know, close to an hour, sometimes more than an hour in listening. That means you've sacrificed something else to do that. So the question is, is listening to this podcast more like work or more like play to you? Now think about it, but don't decide immediately. But if you had to, if you had to choose, would you say listening to this podcast is more like work or is it more like play? Which one? Now you probably uh, now have a sense of what you think it is, if, if you're saying inside, well, actually, if I really think about it, um, this podcast feels more like work to me. Well, we can be nervous about m- admitting something that we really love is work because of the aforementioned knee-jerk negative reaction to work. <laughs> um, so we don't really like to say that things we love or admire or that inspire us or that uh, energize us. We don't like to say that those things require work because work has such a a negative connotation. But if work is central to God's essence, then maybe work has a more complex meaning than our knee-jerk reaction. We know that God worked for a metaphoric six days, and then he rested for just one day. And that's sort of a work-leaning model, isn't it? Six to one. He worked for six, he rested for one. The word work, by the way, appears more than 500 times in the Bible. And God says that his resting day, that one day that he rests, it's actually holy. (laughs) Resting from work is holy, which means it's a set apart sacred thing. So it's a big deal that God works and then rests from work. And he says that resting from the thing that he was just doing is a holy set apart thing. We'll explore a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, we also know that one of the consequences of adam and eve 's betrayal was this big consequence, which is we 're going to work hard but struggle to see the impact of our work. Uh, you know God tells adam you know you 're going to work in the dirt of the ground and try to grow things and it 's you 're never going to feel satisfied with what you 've grown and isn 't that true uh, about us today? ever since that moment we 've been complaining about work. <laughs> Because we work all day, and sometimes we wonder if any of that mattered, right? Well, that tracks all the way back to one of the consequences of our betrayal. So I know a lot of you work jobs. Some of you work by going to school. Um, All of us, in one way or another, are working. and, And I'd say all of us right now are doing a lot of emotional, spiritual work, because of the pandemic and its restrictions and all the things that we've had to grieve and lose out on and all of the things that, all the tension that we're experiencing right now in our culture because of it, we're all doing emotional, spiritual work. I just saw a, um, uh, a report on our psychological health the other day. It said that 70%, seven zero, 70% of Americans are experiencing signs of depression right now. That is a lot of people who are struggling and working through emotional difficulty right now. So work is integrated into our life in one way or another. It's a regular, everyday part of our existence. So here's a a question to think about. What is your favorite thing about work? What's your favorite thing about work? I think my favorite thing about work is the feeling of satisfaction that you've accomplished something. Uh, during this pandemic, I've developed uh, a strange new habit <laughs> and I, I, I haven't really fully thought this through as to why I've developed this strange new habit, but um, I have started to cook dinner a lot more than I ever have. Now, part of that is I'm not going away to an office. I'm home. I, uh, I worked half-time from home even before, but now it's full-time from home as I look for a job and explore new possibilities and, um, but there's something at the end of the day about um, all of the work that I do as a writer and editor and a collaborator and all the stuff that I do. At the end of the day, I am craving a kind of work where I can see the results of it, see the fruits of it quickly. And cooking and making dinner has been that thing for me. It, it has given me a sense of agency and autonomy over uh, my life, I guess, is a way of saying it. And, but it also gives me a creative outlet. And when I'm making dinner, I, I like to be left alone. So I created sort of this bubble around myself where it's some, some alone time, some solo time, which I desperately need. Uh, that, that's part of my makeup. <clears throat> and it's creative time, but it is work. No doubt about it. Um, but I think what I really love about it is what I started out saying. I love the feeling of having accomplished something or seeing the fruits of my labor. And when you cook, you can see it right away. And then when your family loves what you made, you get some immediate feedback from that and it feels satisfying. So I think that's my favorite thing about work to have invested myself, and I'm not saying that lightly by the way, to have invested myself in something and then see the good impact it has is very, very satisfying. And if you think about, well, what's your least favorite thing about work? What's your least favorite thing? I guess you could take the other side of the coin of what I just said. Um, I really resonate when the, the, the beginning and the end of the disciples' experience with Jesus was fishing all night but kept not catching anything. Remember that? When Jesus invited the first disciples, they had just come off uh, a whole night where they tried to catch fish because they're commercial fishermen and they caught nothing. So they were frustrated by that. And at the very end, when Jesus appears on the beach of the Sea of Galilee and calls out to them on the sea, Peter had taken six of his buddies with him to fish all night. And once again, they caught nothing all night. So the two bookends of the disciples' experience of Jesus are fishing all night and not catching anything. I don't think that's an accidental uh, uh, occurrence, by the way. I think that was on purpose to tap into this deeper sense that we need to be dependent on Jesus. When we, we try to default toward doing things on our own, but we have a deep need to be dependent on him. But that's also actually a hard thing about work is when you work all night and catch nothing. Uh, that's my least favorite thing. When you feel like you've invested, 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 and then, it, then it's either not appreciated or it falls apart or something screws it up, or you just don't know what kind of impact it made, I think that's the hardest thing about work for me. Um, so are there things, some things that you love that require work? Are there things you love that require work? I, I'd say uh, you just close your eyes and point your finger. So many of the things that we love require work. It requires work just to read a book. I mean, it can be very enjoyable and propelling and momentum, but you have to actually sit down and read a book. Um, if you're into any hobbies, like if you like to do woodworking or knitting or any kind of hobby, all of them require work, even though there's satisfaction in them. If you're into a, a fitness habit, I, uh, I've i started to run again uh, because my wife is is wanting to start to run again as well. And so uh, it's uh, too jarring for us to, to run around our neighborhood on the asphalt. So we're running on a, uh, a city forested trail that's just outside our neighborhood, one of the best in, in America, actually, is just outside our neighborhood. We are running on this beautiful forested trail about two or three times a week. Um, well, every time it comes up for the day that we're gonna run, um, I, I get that bad feeling in my, the pit of my stomach, you know? <laughs> if you've ever run before, you know what that feeling is like, like, I know this is good, but I don't wanna do it. But once I'm out there running, and then I finish every time, I I have this deep sense that I've really done something. I really persevered through something and had courage to, to finish it out. So I love it, but it also requires not just physical work, but emotional work. If you've ever run before, you know that there are some days that you just don't feel emotionally that you can do it because doing something like that requires emotional persistence, and sometimes you just don't have it. So let's explore the nature and importance of work. Now that we've uh, covered a little bit how much it's threaded into our life and what a little bit of our relationship to work, let's explore the nature of it and its importance as modeled by Jesus. So here's what I'd like to do. I want to to start off by uh, having you listen to a children's story you're probably familiar with. You've probably heard this before. It's called... We're going on a bear hunt. <laughs> it's been around for a long time. It's a, it's a book written by Michael Rosen and illustrated by Helen Oxenbury. It's a classic, it's, a, it's sold millions and millions of copies. A lot of children have grown up listening to this story. We're going on a bear hunt. But I'd like us to listen to Michael Rosen, the author, perform this story. He's doing this on the occasion of the 25th anniversary of its publishing. So we're gonna listen to Michael Rosen perform his story and I just want you to relax for a second. Um, and if you're, if you're not a parent with small children, um, you probably haven't read or listened to a children's story in a long time. I'd like to invite you to, to travel back in time and just be a little kid again. Just relax, breathe. As you listen to this story, I just want you to think about the message of the story. Uh, approach this story as if you've never heard it before because I think there's some twists in this story that you may not have remembered when you were a little kid. So let's go ahead and listen to Michael Rosen perform his, his story, We're Going on a Bear Hunt.
1: Hi, my name's Michael Rosen and I help make a book called We're Going on a Bear Hunt and it goes something like this. Choo choom 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 chum we're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh-oh. Grass. Long, wavy grass. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no. we got to go through it. Swishy, swashy, swishy, swashy, swishy, swashy. chum, 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 Ch-chum, chum, chum, chum. Chum, chum. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh Uh-oh. A river. A deep, cold river. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no. we got to go through it. Dive in. Splash, 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 splash. Chum 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 chum. We're going on a bear hunt. We're gonna catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh oh, mud, thick, oozy mud. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh no, we got to go through it. <coughs> squelch squirch. <coughs> squelch squerch chum 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 we're going on a bear hunt we're going to catch a big one what a beautiful day we're not scared uh-oh a forest a big dark forest We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no. We got to go through it. Stumble, trip, stumble, trip, stumble, trip. chum, 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 chum. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh Uh-oh. A snowstorm, a swirling, whirling snowstorm. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh no! We got to go through it. Ooh, 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 ooh. chum, 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 chum. We're going on a bear hunt, we're going to catch a big one, what a beautiful day, we're not scared, Uh uh-oh, a cave, a narrow gloomy cave, we can't go over it, we can't go under it, oh no, we gotta go through it, tip toe. What's that? One shiny wet nose, two big furry ears, two big goggly eyes. It's a bear! Quick, back through the cave! Tiptoe, 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 back through the snowstorm! Back through the forest. Stumble, trip, stumble, trip, stumble, trip. Back through the mud. Gurgh, squelch, squelch, Back through the river. Dive in. splash, 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 splash. Back through the grass. Swishy, swashy, swishy, swashy, swishy, swashy. Down the road, up to our front door. Open the door, up the stairs. Dup, 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 dup. Oh no, we forgot to shut the door. Back downstairs, dup, 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 dup. Shut that door, boom. Back up the stairs, dup, 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 along the passage, into the bedroom, into bed, under the covers. We're not going on a bear hunt again. And
0: there you have it: going on a bear hunt by Michael Rosen. Bring back some memories. I'd asked you to think about this while you were listening to the to this story. What is the message? of this story. What's the message of the story? I know when I was a kid and I heard this story um, that the thing that drew me in was the hunt itself and this you know obviously the sound effects of the story and the and the adventure of the story. And I think I forgot about how the story ended when I was a kid. Maybe I wasn't even aware of it when I first heard it about how the story ended, but it kind of ends in a well I have to say an unsatisfying way. <laughs> so they uh, they come up to obstacles one after the other. They start out in the bright morning um, when everything looks good, everything looks hopeful, and adventure is a positive word. And they encounter struggle and trial after struggle and trial and challenge. And each one, they have to make a decision because uh, they, they realize they can't go over or under or around it. They're going to have to go through it, which means they're gonna to have to work on their adventure. They're, they can't take the easy way. They can't get around the problem. They're going to have to bear down and work to move through each challenge. And if you um, read this story and look at the pictures as you read it, uh, you'll see that the, the family, especially the adults going along for the ride, get more and more exhausted <laughs> as, they, as they encounter each new challenge and have to go through it. And then when they finally get to the cave and they finally reach their, their goal that, you know, the whole purpose of the adventure is to capture a bear and they finally find a bear, they realize, oh, the, this bear has teeth. <laughs> and they, then they try to escape. And in the book, the bear chases them through all of, back through all of their challenges. You always see the bear right behind them chasing them all the way back home until they finally reach home and they lock the door before the bear can get in and then they go upstairs and they all go underneath the covers and they vow to never go on a bear hunt again. Now that's kind of a nasty twist I think to the end of this beautiful story that that we will never go on a bear hunt again because, wow, that was a lot harder than we thought it was going to be. And even when we got to the place where, where we should have been celebrating the culmination of our goal, we were frightened out of our minds <laughs> and had to run and find a place to hide and be safe from the bear that we encountered. So uh, it, it upends what our sort of romantic view of what adventures are. I think it's a pretty, actually a pretty good picture of what a real adventure is like. We encounter great challenges that we have to work through if we're going to keep going. And sometimes we get to the end of our adventure and we realize, oh no, this is not what I thought it was going to be. I'm actually afraid now. And what are we going to do now? What I hope would happen at the end of a story like that is not the vow that we would never go on an adventure like that one again. Maybe uh, if if I had a chance to change the ending of this story, Maybe you keep it all the way through, including the vow that we're never going on a bear hunt again, and then the next page you see just blackness because it's now nighttime and they're all still under the covers, and you hear one voice say, when are we going on the bear hunt tomorrow? Maybe for me, that would be a better ending to the story, that of course we're afraid and unnerved and disoriented on our adventures, we're exhausted because of the work that they require, Um, and we just want relief, right? We just want relief. We don't want to have to go through that ever again, and yet there's something in us that wants that adventure. There's something in us that can't give up on the adventure. We have to go through the challenges. We have to face the bear, and we have to get up the next morning and go on a new adventure, risking facing that bear all over again. If we don't, we will never discover the, the heart of God and never discover who we really are and what our purpose in life is because it's going through the challenges that we go through that we discover who we really are. And it's going through the challenges uh, of our life that we discover through our dependence on Jesus in the midst of them who he really is. These challenges on our own bear hunts are the entry points into intimacy with Jesus, but they require work not just physical work, but emotional, psychological, spiritual work. And it's really the work that brings satisfaction on the adventure. If on the adventure we could skirt around every obstacle, then actually it's not much of an adventure, isn't it? Is it? it, it it's more like um, relaxing in a hot tub. <laughs> If you can go around all the challenges in your adventure without having, without, without having to go through them, it's not really the definition of an adventure. And it's the adventure that really changes us, grows us, helps us become who we were meant to be in the first place. But here's the deal. Going over or under or around hard things and challenges, it's really our default setting, isn't it? It's the first thing we think about when we come to a hard thing or a challenge. We think, how can I get around this? Especially if it's a, a, an emotionally hard challenge, we think, do I really have to go through this? Isn't there some other way around this? We do this constantly throughout our day. Uh, if there's an emotional challenge in front of us, we look for other ways to get around it. But life, isn't it true? requires us to go through these challenges instead we can't just bail on every challenge we have to go through them and of course going through them leaves us exhausted and afraid and unwilling to risk another adventure that's why our attitude towards work um, our attitudes toward going through things instead of around things is really crucial because one path leads us back into adventure back into our own heart, back into the heart of God, the other path leads us under the covers in life, (laughs) where we cower under the covers and we vow we are not going to expose ourselves to a risk like that again. We can't have that. We're not called to that. It's not the kingdom of God to hide ourselves under the covers. Uh, The kingdom of God is all about adventure. The mission of Jesus is to set captives free. We can't do that from under the covers. So, our attitude towards work and what it requires of us is really important. So let's let's take a look at a few uh, stories and accounts that help will help us get at the mystery of work through the lens of the heart of Jesus. And what I want us to think about as I go through each one of these is what are we learning about the heart of Jesus and the role of work? What are we learning about the heart of Jesus and the role of work? And I thought it'd be interesting to start off with a story that's not about Jesus. This comes from the uh, creation account in Genesis chapter one. Let's explore that first. And then we'll skip around to a couple more stories about Jesus before we finish out here. So this, this first one is from Genesis one verses 26 through chapter two, verse three. So it spans the first and second chapters of Genesis. So if you're not driving and you have your Bible handy and you want to open up to Genesis one, 26 and follow along. You can do that. Um, It'll help to kind of ingest the story if you do that. If you're driving, just listen to my low, sonorous voice as I read this story. So here we go. Genesis 1, 26 through chapter 2, verse 3. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. And so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. And then God said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I've given every green plant as food for all the wild animals the birds in the sky and the small animals that scurry, scurry along around everything that has life. And that is what happened. Then God looked over all he had made and he saw that it was very good and evening passed and morning came marking the sixth day. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. And on the seventh day, God had finished the work of his creation. So he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day. and Remember, I said this before, he blessed that day and declared it holy. Why? Because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. There you have it. So here's a a couple of questions for us to ponder here. If God is all-sufficient and all-powerful, why is work something he has to do? If he's all-sufficient and all-powerful, why isn't existence and God's own experience of existence more like recess? Why is God working? And why does he have to rest from that work? Um, wh- why does he have to do this in the first place? I think uh, one interesting uh, exploration of that question is to think about the very character of God in the first place. Work uh, work must be integral to God's character and personality. It's not a deficit that he has to work. It's that there's something central about work in the heart of God that is necessary for God to live out who he is and and what his mission is in our life. Work brings growth, recess typically doesn't. Work requires something of us. It, it asks us to invest ourselves in something. And we know that God created everything that is created out of himself. So uh, this is uh, maybe a, a, a good way to think about why work is central to God's character and personality and purpose. Um, God invested himself in creation. And the investment of yourself is central to what work is. Work costs you something and the thing that it costs is something of your essence. You're investing something about yourself in your work and God wants everything he touches to be invested with himself. So work is important because love means it invests itself in the other and therefore God must work to invest himself in all of creation and in all of us. It's part of the rhythm of love to invest in the other and that's just another way of 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 saying work so the the second question out of this story though is why did god create human beings and then give them work to do why didn't he just create us to live in permanent vacation mode why did he give them the responsibility of reigning over all that god had created that's work why did he give that to them I think it, the, the answer is embedded in what we just talked about. If it's central to God's heart, he also wants it to be central to our heart. He wants us to invest our essence in everything we do. He wants us to creatively explore what it looks like to give of ourselves to something outside of ourselves, because that is a, a direct reflection of God's image in our life, to, to look out from ourselves and to invest ourselves in the other, whatever it is, is good work. And he created us to mirror his own heart by giving us good work to do. So the last question here is, well, why is resting from work then holy? Why is that one day of rest called holy? Why is it sacred? Why is it set apart? In in a sense, you, you can't have the experience of rest if, unless you have first worked, isn't that true? Rest doesn't mean anything unless it's preceded by work. So rest, in a way, is is like worship. Rest is looking back on the impact of the investment of who you are in, in whatever you've done, and appreciating it, remembering that uh, it that that impact glorifies God because God wants everything. Creation to grow, including us, and when we work, things grow. And when we rest, we look back on the things that have grown because of our work and we experience gratefulness and worship and awe. Sometimes, wow, look at that work, look at what has grown or changed from that work. And it's holy because growth and change are sacred, it means that. Um, so, uh, that something, a person or a thing, has moved and morphed from one state of being to a higher state of being, if it's good work, and that that thing has become even more beautiful, which is a reflection of God's own passion and, and the momentum in his heart. He wants to, as Michael Gunger says in his beautiful song, he wants to make beautiful things out of ugly things. That is his passion. He wants to make beautiful things out of us. And in order for that to happen, he has to invest himself. And in investing himself, he sometimes stops to take a look back on all the growth that has happened because of that investment. And he calls that growth sacred and holy. The, the rest is a way of reflecting back um, the, the profound impact of our investment. So let's skip to another another, now we're going to skip into the New Testament and, uh, go after Jesus here for a second. Um, here, this one's from Matthew chapter six, just after the, uh, just at the tail end of the Beatitudes. This is a beautiful poetic little passage at the very end of this first sort of shock and awe, um, uh, uh sort of, uh, soliloquy that Jesus gives on the side of a mountain. Um, So this is from Matthew chapter 6, and it's verses 24 through 34, and the heading in my jesus Center Bible is Jesus teaches about money and possessions. Now, as I read this, remember, the question is, what are we learning about the heart of Jesus and the role of work um, from this story about Jesus teaching about money and possessions? So here we go, starting in verse 24, chapter 6 of Matthew. This is Jesus speaking. No one can serve two masters for you will hate the one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? So don't worry about these things saying, what will we we eat and what will we drink and what will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. Now here's some dissonance for you. If we're not supposed to worry about everyday life, and if we're supposed to uh, look at the lilies of the field and that recognize that they don't work and they're not working to make their clothing, then why do we have to work in order to survive? What, what is Jesus really saying here? He's saying, um, look at all of my creation. Learn from my creation. Relax. What, uh, relax. Trust God. Does, does he mean that it, trusting God means not working. Um, you could take that message from this if, if you're looking at it a certain way. So let's explore it a little bit more. What does Jesus mean about not worrying about everyday life? And how does that relate to our own work that we know we, we've got to work in order to survive in this world? So what does it mean to not worry about that and to not have an attitude that is other than the lilies of the field? that never work to clothe themselves. So if you think about uh, the relationship that I talked about at the very start of the podcast between work and play, I asked you to think about whether listening to this podcast was more like work or more like play. And some of you are probably thinking, oh, it's a little bit of both. And if you think about that for a second, um, when children naturally play, right, that play is the work of children. And if play requires work from children. They're eager to invest that work in their play. They don't see life in a compartmentalized way. They see the work as totally integrated with the play. And in fact, the work becomes play for little children. So when we think about Jesus inviting us to be like little children, or we will not understand what life is like in the kingdom of God, when we think about that, we can track back to this realization that children see work and play as intertwined one feeds the other, and play that doesn't require work isn't really that fun. Talk to any child or even any teenager and and ask them the role of work in their play and first of all you'll learn that they've never thought about it that way and second of all they will almost a hundred percent say well. The fact that my play involves some work is actually part of the satisfaction I have in that play. So when we think about what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, I think, that our work needs to come from a a place of play, that we see our work as a necessary part of the resting, relaxed attitude and the trusting attitude we have toward him in our everyday life that yes uh, as we trust Jesus and relax in who he is he will still ask us to work within that relaxed state of trusting because our work again invests who we are in the thing but not we're not working to prove ourselves we're not working to perform for others well not we're not working to to uh, check off a box We're working because our play, which is really what it means, what it feels like to follow Jesus is more like play. That play always requires work. Uh, It's an investment of ourselves. And another question is, how does this truth that our heavenly father knows all our needs, which is what Jesus is saying, how does that impact how we work and why we work? If he knows all our needs, does that mean that we don't need to think about our own needs, that we don't need to pay attention to those needs and somehow find a way to fulfill those needs. How does this truth that our Heavenly Father knows all our needs impact how and why we work? Well, he knows our needs, but he also knows that work brings a dependent, intimate relationship. As we work, think about going on a bear hunt again, when we're going through the challenges instead of around them, we are in need in the middle of that challenge. When we have to work through our challenges and we have to come face to face with that bear, we are in need. We have a a need for him outside of our own ability to meet our need. And that dynamic that draws us back to him, connects us back to him relationally, is very important in our life. So yes, he knows all our needs, but that doesn't mean that the solution to those needs is going to drop out of the sky. Because it's in our moving through those needs that we discover uh, the intimacy in our relationship with Jesus as we become more dependent on him. So what attitude toward work is Jesus suggesting here? I think he's suggesting that we, we do the work, the good work he's given us, but do it from a relaxed place of trust that not everything depends on us that this is a partnership in our life. Jesus expects us to invest ourselves, to invest our heart, and he is simultaneously investing his heart. And there are times when, when we are so exhausted by pushing through all of our bear hunt challenges that we've got nothing left. And Jesus understands that when we're emptied in that way, that he's going to take a more active role in, in our work. Have you ever been through a season of life where you feel like Jesus is working a lot harder than you are to help you move through that bear hunt challenge? I have many times. And there are also seasons in life where it feels like you're doing more work moving through that challenge than Jesus is. It feels like, hey, Jesus, I need a little help here. Um, There are seasons like that as well. It's not a linear path. What it is is an intimate partnership together where we're, uh, each of us, Jesus and us, um, uh, investing and reinvesting our heart in the process. Let's, let's, let's go to one last, um, story before we close off here. This is from John chapter nine, verses one through seven. This is Jesus healing the man born blind. And again, what what are we thinking about? We're thinking about in this story, what do we learn about the heart of Jesus and the role of work? So here we go. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, Jesus healing a man born blind. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who'd been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Well, it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work but while I'm here in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. And he told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and he came back seeing. This is a familiar story. We've, we've uh, gone after it many times already on this podcast in the past because it's such a fantastic story and an unusual one because of how Jesus heals this man's blindness. He heals him by asking him to participate in that healing by working so most people aren't given work to receive their healing by jesus why was this guy given work i think um if you let's put ourselves in the shoes of this man who's born blind from birth this is in uh, jericho the jesus and his disciples were just about to leave jericho and this man who who, uh, was born blind hears that jesus is passing by and um and hears that he is the one who makes blind people see. And so uh, Jesus sees this man by the side of the road and he leans down, he spits on the ground, he makes mud with that saliva and he spreads it over the blind man's eyes. So Jesus is not just thinking about the man's blindness in this moment. He's thinking about the man's identity, what he has accepted and adopted in his life uh, just to survive. There are so many things in our lives that we have adopted and accepted just to make it. Uh, if you experience trauma when you were a child, you develop some survival techniques that probably carry with you into adulthood. Um, these are the ways that we have learned to protect our identity and to make it so that we somehow survive. Jesus not only sees this man's blindness, he also sees his captivity the ways in which these survival techniques have kept this man captive. One of those things, one of those certainly one of those things that, is, that has kept him captive and could still is that this man is not able to work for himself. He's dependent as a beggar on other people. And Jesus wants his new life, when he can see again, to not involve that same attitude of I can't do anything for myself and so from the very beginning he gives this man some work to do to show this man that your investment your agency in your own healing is part of the pattern i want you to live out in your life after you can see again i want you to be actively involved not passively waiting for others to meet your needs i want you to invest yourself in your future and and once you can see again i want you to have a pattern of not hanging back. I don't want you to have a beggar mentality. So let's get this whole thing started by asking you to do a hard thing. I'm, I'm smearing mud on your eyes. It's embarrassing. And then I'm asking you to find your way to this pool outside of town and, and wash before you're healed. And the man does it. He, he plants something in his own heart that says, I'm going to do this thing I'm not going to wait for somebody to help me do this thing. I'm not even going to question why Jesus is doing it this way. I'm going to invest myself in my own healing. I'm going to partner with Jesus in my own release from captivity. And this then sets a pattern for the man throughout the rest of his life, that he's not going to hang back. He's going to dive in. He's not going to balk and let somebody else, uh, let, let the solution to his problem drop out of the sky. He's going to participate in that solution, whatever it is. Um, what, and by the way, in this story, Jesus says, we must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us. What does that mean anyway? Let me go back to where he says this. Um, uh, and when his disciples say that the, uh, they're wondering whether it's this man's sins or his parents' sins that led him to this, Jesus says, this happens so the power of God could be seen in him. And then he says, we must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. So the power of God here, think about this. We think about the power of God being displayed by giving this man back his sight. But really the power of God in this story is that this man quickly carries out the tasks assigned to him that Jesus has given to him that there's something about leaning into that task, accepting that task, pursuing that task, and, and uh, not discounting the work of going through the challenge that does something profound in us. We become co-creators with God of our own story, uh, to use a different metaphor. We're writing a story together with God and we take an active role in writing that story. And so Jesus is saying That's, that shows the power of God that, that transforms the identity of the person. So this is, a I think, a, an incredible story of an invitation to invest, which is what work really is all about in the end. It's, it's God's invitation to us to invest ourselves. And when we invest ourselves in our work, we don't take all of it on, we, we, ha- we come from a place of play, a place of relaxed trust as we enter into our work. And that trust invites Jesus into our effort. Um, my, my daughter just said that, one, that her pastor at her church up at college, often says that, that God uh, honors, honors effort, but is opposed to earning. God honors effort, but is opposed to earning. See the difference between those two things? It's the effort that reflects the the heart of God in us. It means we're willing to invest whatever it is to go through our challenge and to face that bear. We're willing to lean into that part of the adventure, Um, but we're not willing to look at our effort as a way of earning anything. It's the earning part that shuts God out from the whole equation. If we think our effort is what's earned it, then we've effectively said God's not involved in this. Um, but if our effort is commingled with God's effort in our life, then we celebrate together the outcome of whatever it is. I hope that makes sense. Well, let's end today's podcast by just taking our own little Sabbath rest for a moment. Now, if you're able to, stand up, stand up now. But if you're not, if you're driving or something like that, just stay where you are. (laughs) But I want you to relax just for a minute. Uh, Sense where the tension is in your body right now and just uh, uh, intentionally relax yourself. Now, if you're able to stand up, go ahead and stand up and just be quiet. Um, If you're able to stand up and extend your arms out to the sides and above you, do that. And just pause for a second. Listen for what you hear in your surroundings. We'll be quiet for a second. Take a big breath in. And then a big breath out. Take another big breath in. And another big, big breath out. And now slowly put your arms down. And you feel the strength and tension that, that they required to hold out their leave. Let it kind of leak out the bottom of your fingertips. Just to let your body relax. There you have it. A little moment of Sabbath. And Sabbath, again, is the celebration of work. It looks back on the work and enjoys the, the impact of it, the cost of it even. So maybe in just a tiny micro way, you just got a little celebration of your own work in that Sabbath moment. Well, gang, thanks for listening. This is, uh, again, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. You can find out everything I've talked about on this podcast today by going to payingridiculousattentiontojesus.com. You'll be looking for season five, episode 28. Season five, episode 28. This is a podcast that's produced by ricklawrence.com. You can subscribe to it on Google Play or iTunes. Hey gang, we'll talk to you again next time.